0: Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's episode, we talk Jaguar Engineering with Ralph Hosier, and we hear about race two from Silverstone with Tom. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you on the first podcast of May, amazingly in 2021 and we've got a bank holiday under our belt already here in the uk the leaves are on the trees and things are starting to feel like they're coming back to normal here across the uk at least as we look forward to a summer of jaguar festivals and events and great stuff we can get involved with and here to tell us more about what we can get involved with is the general manager of the jaguar enthusiast club james blackwell hiya james Hello, Wayne. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. I'm feeling the summer vibes, you see. I'm looking out my window now and there's, like, leaves on the trees and stuff. We've had some lovely sunny weather. Bank holiday's behind us. There's another to come. And lockdown's easing. So we have had the confidence, haven't we, to press ahead with the 4th of July at Bista Heritage for the one-day Summer Jaguar Festival.
1: We have. Oh, how good does that feel? And uh, confidence is the key word in that one. It's been so... It's just not been there for the last year and a bit. We didn't know whether we were coming or going or where we were going to go in terms of COVID and restrictions. And uh, now all of a sudden with that roadmap and it looks like things are, are going in the right direction. I, even I've had my first jab. Um, you know, it does look like finally we can uh, we, we can get these shows on the road. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I've missed them
0: absolutely well we've got a great weekend lined up at Bista heritage a great day out for everyone in the family really because not only have you got the jaguars parked up that you can go and have a look around all of our members cars are going to be there it's going to be the biggest gathering of jaguar cars anywhere in the uk this year but of course we've got those fantastic anniversaries we're celebrating the e-type of course mark 10 the x-type the xk8s and x150s a I mean we don't normally need a reason to party but there's even more reason to party this year that's exciting in itself isn't it It is
1: and uh, everybody's feeling that the same way you know the bookings are coming in thick and fast we're, we're struggling to keep on top of the uh, the calls and the other uh, question to the office as well as people booking online which is which is fantastic you know it's another really good problem to have and it's nice to know that people are feeling the same way and want to come out and enjoy this gathering and and yeah help us put on what will undoubtedly be as you say the largest gathering of of jaguars in the uk this year um always proud that we're able to do that
0: and also they won't just be parked up we have some track action and this is a great thing about Bista heritage uh you know although we weren't able to be at blenheim like we planned we have got a racetrack and there are going to be cars on it all day with you lot listening to this in the passenger seat that's going to be an amazing new addition to the event
1: it's brilliant isn't it you know if we all the true background noise of any jaguar event should be the engines it should be that that either the aj6 or the xk engine or you know or the v8s or the, whatever it is that's out there on the track that that should be the background that should be the music that we enjoy and uh, it's a re- it's it really is nice that we're able to do it have some proper movement um, as well as everything else that we've got going on it, it, exciting i'm looking forward to that as well which i was going to miss that opportunity had we've had the uh you know the event in its uh in format as we were going to do it at benham so I'm, I'm really happy i actually get to enjoy that sound along with everybody else
0: and even if you're not in the passenger seat there's great stuff to watch these cars will be driven well driven spirited and there's going to be some real jaguar daimler heritage trust legends out on track so you won't just be seeing these legendary iconic cars from jaguar's history parked up in a field you're going to see them in action out on the test track at Bista heritage traders stalls market stands food to eat it's all going to be there and i'm looking forward to being on the live stage and talking to all of you guys entertaining you all and talking to some celebrities and we've got some big hitters turning up haven't we james
2: we have,
1: we have uh, it's it, it's really again another really nice element where we've been able to sort of really improve on over in recent years, and uh, it just adds an extra element to the event, gives a different look at uh, how people look at these cars, and uh, it's nice to to have somebody there who just has a real presence and a name. So uh, yeah, no, looking forward to it, I'm not sure we can name all of the people yet, so um, I'm going to keep stum
0: well one of the people i can name as kevin mcleod our presenter from grand designs on channel four of course who's been on this very podcast he's going to be there with his cars to talk about jaguars the tv show and some interesting insights into how he sees the future of classic cars playing out that'll be a fascinating conversation so now you're all jumping up and down with excitement how james do we get hold of our tickets for this event
1: easiest way to do it is go online go to jc.org.uk forward slash festival log into the website and buy your ticket that's the easiest way to get on and do it
0: can't wait to be there can't wait to see all of you there as well so get your tickets now as james says go online get them booked full refund if covid gets in the way but it won't we're fine now we'll be all heading out of it with our vaccines it'll be great and really looking forward to seeing the whole of the jaguar community coming together to celebrate those iconic anniversaries and just to be with each other again after all this time, no Zoom calls allowed on that weekend. We all have to be together at Bicester Heritage, and that's kind of how the Jaguar Enthusiast Club has run over the last eighteen months via Zoom calls and whatever else we've used to keep in touch. But you guys are coming back into the office a little bit more now, aren't you? We are
1: indeed. Yeah, we, we've obviously been under the work at home uh, remit from the, from the government, so we have restricted the amount of times we're in the office, which is. Yeah, we've been able to still do the majority of what we needed but a lot of procedures and, th- and things that we sent out
3: is
1: have yeah, happened a different way um but no we are coming back into the office a couple more days a week now that's getting more frequent and uh you know when those those final restrictions are lifted in june um you'll see you see us more back in the office far off more often and uh We now have a new team as well. Uh, Not only have we had COVID going on, we've had uh, quite a lot of changes going on in terms of manpower at the office. So Kathy introduced herself uh, recently in the magazine and we have a, another new recruit. Uh, Young Sophie has joined us to, uh, to to take on that role of dealing with phone calls and emails. So she's been getting into the swing of things as well. And of course, Andy Weber um, is now working with us on on a full-time basis. So it's a, It's all changed, but um, I'm still here. And, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have that vibe back in the office when we do do get uh, a chance for a few of us to be in the office. It's really nice. Again, I really missed having people to talk to um, in the office face to face. So, uh, yeah, getting back to, I want to say, normality loosely
0: and a fresh young team there but they are jaguar enthusiasts through and through and it does really feel like there is a jaguar family running the club
1: yeah again we've always been very proud of that it's some of the jc is. you know it, it, the first thing at all of our hearts is we're really passionate about the club and the cars that that's the first thing that we, that we really want to do and um so to have a team of people from right at the very top, from the directors all the way down to uh, us guys here in the office and, uh, and the volunteers, the people there here that make the club what it is, it's, it really is great to see that passion and enthusiasm come across. So, uh, yeah, a lovely team and it's nice to have a, a, that team working alongside me now as
0: well. Absolutely. Well, thanks for the update, James, from the office down there at Bristol. Good to hear you're all getting back into the office and working with each other in person once again. And uh, of course, you can keep up to date with lots of things from the office with James's column in Jaguar Enthusiast magazine. Also, the chairman's column in there from Ray Sales tells you all of the latest news from the club that you need to know from bristol and from around the regions as well so check it all out in the magazine but uh, james come back and uh, tell us how the final preparations are going for the summer jaguar festival at bista just before we go Uh, we'll be taking this podcast on the road soon as well as soon as lockdown eases so we'll tell you more about that but for now james blackwell general manager of the jc thanks for joining us
1: pleasure wayne you take care and uh, everybody else out there stay safe
0: Motorsport Heroes, with Richard West's Hall of Fame. There are some people in automotive history who followed a dream, followed a passion, and for some, it actually came true. And our next inductee is one of those people, isn't he, Richard West? Hiya.
3: He is indeed, and it's no less, of course, than Ian Callum, the modern-day Mr Jaguar, the title of which was... um, I suppose originally awarded to Sir William Lyons as the founder but Ian certainly with his brilliant history at designing so many cars successful cars for Jaguar is this week's inductee into our hall of fame
0: and it really was a childhood dream of his not to just work in car design but to work in car design for Jaguar and Mm. as a young boy he sent in designs to Jaguar begging them for a job didn't he
3: He did indeed I mean he at the age of 14 he submitted a car design to them and I think that passion is clearly what took him through his hugely successful years with Ford, TWR, Aston Martin etc and then Jaguar and JLR and drives him forward now with his design business Callum with a number of other very talented designers working alongside him. Was that
0: where you first met him then when he arrived at TWR from Ford?
3: Yes, it was. I mean, Tom had taken over the the Leefield site, um, uh, you know, famously for for all of its histories going back, I think, with Marconi. And Tom had bought the entire site and there was a design studio there. And as I was being walked around one afternoon, we went into the studio and and there was a young Ian, you know, scraping away at a clay model. And Tom introduced me and it was a very cursory, hello, you know, how are you? What do you do? And on, on he went. And of course, you know i went my way and ian went on to his incredibly stratospheric career with so many of the cars that many of us are familiar with today
0: well i'm guessing as a young designer he wanted to spread his wings wider than the sort of corporate life at ford and that was probably the attraction of twr where you met him
3: yeah, indeed. He was employed at Ford, I believe, from, from 1979 to 1990. And he, he worked across a wide range of plants. He was in Japan, Italy, Australia, and of course, Dunton. But He's famously quoted as saying he worked on bits of cars, mostly steering wheels. And when Tom came along and made the offer to work on things such as the DB7 and the Vanquish and other cars like that, it was just too much for him to turn down. And at that time, Tom was flying high with the TWR group and had great visions of TWR becoming a long-term car design business as well as a competitor.
0: Well, the DB7 won in the Jim Clark Memorial Award in '95, and it was no coincidence really that a lot of motoring journalists commented on the definite similarities between the db7 and the xk8 was it really
3: no, there uh, there was. I mean, when you saw it, and I remember it very well, seeing it as a clay. And uh, as you rightfully say, the similar were immense. But of course, Ian's always pushed the boundaries. And he felt that certainly in the Jaguar range, whilst he had to retain some of the heritage, he also had to design things that, that took us forward into a new era. And that he did very, very successfully. Well, his
0: next move came in 1999. And let's remember where Jaguar were in 1999 they'd been under ford ownership for just over a decade at this point they had launched already the concept for the s type it was a design basically driven by rose tinted glasses but ian callum came in and changed all of that
3: Yes, he did. I think, you know, apart from the rose-tinted glasses, there was also the, you know, Jeff sadly passed, I believe, in 1999, Jeff Lawson. But there was also, in his period, there was that continued look back at Jaguars past and iconic shapes and swirls that made a jaguar look like it did ian wanted to change that and you know he came in and quite clearly um with a team of very talented men and women around him set about the task of modernizing the jaguar look that we're now also familiar with
0: Mm. well it was a period really that transformed jaguar of course not just in the design and the way the cars look but of course the all-aluminium bodies came in at that point as well
3: yeah, indeed. did. That was a big step forward again, and when you start to look at some of the later Jaguars, um, there are some beautiful models out there that benefit from that, that lightened and also rock-proof body, which was a great step forward in manufacturing.
0: Well, I think one of his highlights at Jaguar has to be the car that made it to the Bond film the CX75. Not only was it an incredible design, and I remember seeing it for the first time thinking, wow, look at that. But of course, it was going back some years now, it was hybrid technology, and it was Jaguar's first look at alternative fuels.
3: It was indeed. <laughs> the, the, the model itself was was much protected, you know, wherever it went on display and wherever it was shown. And um, for a while, of course, it was um, it was housed in the Williams F1 Museum and car collection. And I remember showing a group of Chinese um, professors and business people around through the interpreter, and I was saying, please be very careful with the cars. And suddenly the doors swung open, and before I could stop them, there were people swarming all over it and sitting inside it. But it survived to tell the tale, I'm glad to say.
0: Well, it was the start of another big moment, I think, in Jaguar history that Ian Callan was responsible for. and whilst i don't think it quite gets the recognition it's due at this particular moment in time and quite often big historical moments don't get realized until much further on down the line but i think one of his key designs that we will look back on in the future and realize is a huge turning point not just for jaguar but for the motor industry as a whole is the Pace. this transformed luxury electric cars and took the market away from tesla didn't it
3: Oh, very much so. Um, I mean, it, it, there's such a long list of cars that you can, you know, credit to, to Ian and his team, but you are right. The um, the pace the F-Pace, the work that was done on that was was incredible. And um, it, it it brought the Jengi electric uh philosophy and practice you know starkly into reality and Ian, there are many pictures on the internet of Ian receiving awards for for that car and quite rightly so because he just had the bravery to step forward and say to the board of jaguar this is where we need to go and that car was the result of it and and cars subsequent to that are a result of that bravery in terms of putting his ideas forward
0: his very first design work for jaguar was in 2004 with the facelifted s-type his very last was the jaguar ipace that has changed jaguar's fortunes so amazingly over the last few years but now ian callum is no longer at jaguar well not full-time at least because he's gone on to pursue other projects i know he's working on a aston martin that he believes that is the car that he should have designed had he had more budget at the time but he does keep his hand in at jaguar and they do consult with him often don't they
3: Yes, they do indeed. I mean, I think it was early June 2019 that he decided to step down to pursue his other design projects. And the the Aston Martin you refer to, the um, the Aston Martin 25, as it's going to be called, the Vanquish 25, um, he describes it in its promotional video as some things are better the second time around. And I think he's not constrained in any way, shape or form and when you look at that video which is available on youtube and you just shows you some of the little tweaks and some of the design changes that ian's putting into the car the one thing you can be sure of that whatever comes out of the callum design studio will be breathtaking and it will be different and that that's really the hallmarks i think of ian's fantastic career and of course
0: we call this the motorsport hall of fame and some of you might be wondering why we've got a road car designer in our motorsport hall of fame but actually we refer back to his time at twr where he actually started to design some quite iconic racing cars including one for nissan
3: He did, the R390, a beautiful piece of high-performance design. And, of course, you know, going right back, his concepts also in 1984 included work on the Ford RS200, I believe, as well. So uh, Ian's Ian's always loved those types of projects. And I think that when you design a competition car, you push the boundaries. And what he's done is that philosophy of pushing motorsport boundaries has just been reflected all the way through all of the cars that he's designed. And, uh, yeah, he's danced with motorsport through that period but I just think when you consider what he's done part of the TWR empire in those days what he's going on to do now with Aston Martin in the 25 you certainly can't leave him out of the Hall of Fame that's for sure
0: To the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to, or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. On this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're talking to a man who's combined a glittering media career with a lifelong passion with engineering, and someone who has worked on some interesting projects with Jaguar Land Rover, which we'll talk about in just a moment, and of course, encouraging the future of the people who work on historic vehicles through the Heritage Skills Academy at Bicester Heritage. Welcome to the JEC podcast, Ralph Hosier.
2: Hiya. Hello, mate. How are you doing?
0: Very good, thanks. Yeah, so uh, where do we find you today, and what are you working on, first of all?
2: Well, today I'm in my uh, workshop, which we refer to sometimes as the shed of dreams. We create all sorts of interesting vehicles here, Uh, and we also do training courses from um, high-level stuff for professionals all the way down to... Um really beginner level stuff, and what I found is recently there's a, a real interest in people who just want to get their hands dirty for the first time and find out how to work that work on their cars. Um, today we're working on restoring a couple of old old beasties. Um, we've got uh, a range Rover and an old uh, Bristol in there, um, and there's also two jaguars in the shop there's an x j forty and an s type, so uh, a varied a varied collection interesting two
0: fairly i would say modern classic jaguars there then is there an interest interest rising in those cars do you see
2: definitely i mean for years the xj40 was sort of the underdog of the xj world um which was quite unfair because it was quite advanced when it came out and it's a great car you know and it, it rides beautifully it drives lovely uh, and people are now starting to get interested in them and, and recognise them for what they are. Um, so it, it's nice to see that, that that's picking up a bit. The S-type, um, the modern S-type rather than the original S-type, um, was always a bit. Uh, it was a bit odd because it was that era where they were really getting into the whole car industry was getting into retro looks, and when the S-type came out, nobody was quite convinced they'd got it right. Um, and there were some tweaks to the way it looked fairly early on in its first facelift. Um, but now when you look at them, it, it really it's aged well. Um, and again, they, they drive beautifully. Um, they're, they're lovely cars to be in. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a growing interest in those as well
0: it's true isn't it i mean i suppose the s-type represents the last of the sort of jeff lawson era really of jaguar design and as Mm, you say it was mm. a period where the british motor industry was sort of trying to rediscover itself i think post bl and nostalgia was key was the rover 75 was out at the same time very similar principle to it but like a good period drama on tv these
2: cars do age well (laughs) it is a proper jaguar Um, and uh, as i say the one we got there on actually used myself Uh, I've done about a thousand miles in it in the last month and um, it's just a lovely thing. For us of course it represents an
0: affordable way into the Jaguar community as well because whilst other Mm. classic car prices have skyrocketed over the last 10 years or so here we have a whole selection of key parts of jaguar's history you can own and xj40's brilliant example i love them mm-hmm. i'm an absolute advocate of the xj40 they are the xj6 of choice for me but they're still peanuts aren't they
2: very much so um you know you compare it to other things I and mean, we're doing a, a full ground up restoration on um a series one e-type at the moment as well and obviously it, just in the time that it's been in the workshop being worked on its price has increased by twenty thousand pounds which is ridiculous, um, whereas things like the XJ40, you, you get the Jaguar experience, that beautifully smooth ride, but with good handling, um, sublime engines, brilliantly designed, excellent interiors, they're just lovely places to be
0: and they have a smell there is an xj40 smell i'm convinced of it and whenever i I poke my i mean there is a jaguar smell we're familiar with like the sort of mark ii wooden leathery lacquery kind of smell but xj40s have a particular one that they only have and that's worth buying in itself
3: (laughs) yeah
2: yeah it's very nostalgic i mean that whole it smells one of those strong senses that really takes you back and um, yeah it's it's definitely part of the character of the thing
0: well let's take you back uh, ralph because you've had a fascinating career in automotive and of course we're familiar with you on our tv screens but you are an engineer at heart and you've had a phenomenal career designing cars tell us about how it all started for you and some of the projects you've been involved with along the journey
2: (laughs) Well, it probably all started when I was a kid mucking around with toy cars um, and Meccano. Um, And um, that led me into doing a a diploma in engineering. Um, And unlike a lot of people, I did mechanical and electrical, which um, a lot of people just go one way or the other. But I'm awkward. So um, I did both. And then I went and did a degree in computer systems engineering. And um, my final year project, I made a an ECU from scratch that programmed itself Um, and I managed to borrow um, a Rover 800 from Gaydon Research Centre for my final year project in the um, that was in 89 Um, and then uh, from that I went to Ford's Research Centre at Dunton in Essex and worked uh, Ford's um, Design and Engineering Centre for seven years and then went up to Rolls Royce Bentley, as it was then up in Crewe um, before the company was split into, um, worked on um, the new cars but also some of the specials that that, that were coming out, um, like uh, Bentley's first actual 4x4, which nobody talks about, which was the Bentley Dominator. Um, so you can Google that and you'll see what we were working on then. Um, but uh, yeah, and then i um, Worked for Ford in uh, Cologne, uh, working on uh, all sorts of bits and pieces over there, and then ended up at uh, Jaguar Land Rover. I spent eight years in research and development with Jaguar Land Rover, doing all sorts of bits and pieces.
0: Wow, fascinating. And, of course, that Jaguar Land Rover sort of backing, I suppose, led you into even more premium cars with Kahn, didn't it?
2: Yeah. <laughs> well sort of um <laughs> i've been dabbling with um i've been dabbling with tv stuff since uh, 2000 when i started doing uh, a series with the bbc called panic mechanic um which is when i met um people like ed china and all that but i did uh i did a series for men and motors channel if anyone remembers that um top dog cars um and then i because i've got my own engineering company and we do um uh, little projects for race companies and all the rest of it, as well as the big projects for mainstream car companies that we've just mentioned. Um, so I got stuck in with that and didn't really do telly for a good sort of six odd years. Um, and then an opportunity came up to work on um, Supercar Mega Build, which was which is a very odd show because uh, myself and Ronan, um, who I've known for decades, we, we both started at Ford at the same time in 1990 um and it was pitched to us as can you modify some supercars and we'll film you doing it which is like yeah that's fine and they pitched it to khan as you're going to be like the alan sugar and you're going to give these guys a bit of a hard time (laughs) right okay yeah fine and they kept telling us different stories um to try and build tension into it and all the rest of it which really didn't work because me and ronan are engineers and we take everything literally and um, when something doesn 't make sense, we don 't go start shouting to the screen about it. We just go, hang on, this doesn 't make sense and try and resolve it, um, <laughs> yes. which they hated. Um, so it was all a very, very odd thing, but uh, yeah we, we got to go out and play with some interesting stuff. you know we spent some time in Japan and in mexico and in America and um, Morocco. Um, playing with cars which was which was nice but i was still trying to hold on my actual job at the same time Mm um so we're sort of doing two or three days filming and then going back to doing real world stuff so it was it was quite tricky balance um which i'm not entirely sure sure i actually got the balance right during that but uh, (laughs) a lot of people enjoyed the show which is great yeah a bit absolutely well if
0: we're jaguar land rover fans which of course we are what bits on our cars that we uh we can actually see and touch that have been designed or worked on by ralph at some point
2: (laughs) well most of the work i've done in the last sort of um 15 years or so is getting um is working with prototype and experimental vehicles getting them to work properly Mm -hmm. um so uh, a lot of troubleshooting and also building teams and getting getting the right people in on the job and all the rest of it so when you when you look at a car there's not one person who's designed a thing um there's there's hundreds of people who are involved with it um so you've got component engineers development engineers uh, performance and economy engineers um nvh people dealing with the sound and vibration elements of it so for instance at the um uh, at the Whitley, um, development center. When I was there, there was about 2000 people working on the cars, um, and a similar amount at Gaiden And that's, that's grown enormously since then. Um, which gives you an idea of the scale of it. So mm-hmm. you can't point to one bit and say, yeah, I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, even, um, you know, if you speak to the, the design gurus, you know, like Jerry McGovern and, um, Ian Callum, et cetera, Um, they come up with the, the, the big concepts, the important bits, and then they have a whole team who develop all the detailed bits and pieces. Mm. So it, it really is. Car development is a massive team ele- effort. Mm.
0: Well, I suppose there are so many more elements to it now than the days of Malcolm Sayer when he would have a clay model and a, and a sketch pad. You know, there are so yeah. many more complexities to an automobile now, aren't
2: there? Absolutely. It takes about seven years from coming up with the idea we're going to build such and such a car to actually having one come out of the production line um and if you're developing a completely new model it generally for mass production it generally costs about four billion um to to actually get it from a an idea to into the showroom so it's a a massive huge effort from um, lots of different places you know you have test fleets with maybe a couple of hundred uh, experimental and prototype cars doing all sorts of different test and development work um running around all the time um and that's one of the things people talk about is you know what well, happened to the prototype for this model mm. um and you go what well, well actually there were 250 different prototypes for that model <laughs> developing different bits and pieces yeah. so no they can't keep all the prototypes because you run out of space very quickly do those big budgets that we see now do you think that has is-
0: sort of put an end then to some of the cars that we see when we look back in history going right the way back to the 60s with Jaguar. you could say the xj13 or more recently of course we had the xk 180 concept do you think the big budgets involved and then the commitment that manufacturers have to then put into developing a new car has kind of killed off those you know friday afternoon projects in the design office um. where we will come
2: up with something wacky it's, it's different. Uh, it's, it's changed. You can't come up with something that's unique. Um, like if we look at the, the XJ13, um, you know, it, you can see its lineage and it's how it followed on from other vehicles. But it was a complete, you know, every single piece of it is unique to, to that vehicle, including the engine. Um, and um, so that sort of thing you can't really do anymore um but what you can do is you can take elements that have been developed like an engine or a suspension system or big chunks of a car adapt them and put them together to make something quite special um and sometimes just slight changes make the whole driving experience completely different you know if you, if you have a, a play with a project seven or something like that it's it's not a massive change but the driving experience is completely different so i, I think that whole thing that's Different, and what you see with special vehicles division of Jaguar Land Rover doing their thing, you can see how they're they're applying that imagination and taking you know big chunks of existing stuff where all the development money's already been spent and applying that in novel ways. So I think there'll still be fun cars coming out. Yeah, what's interesting
0: now, of course, is that it's almost gone full circle back to what we saw from Jaguar in the late 1940s, early 1950s, in that they're putting huge amount of investment once again into motive power engines if you like but obviously they're not because they're having to adapt to the ev era that we're now entering and it's almost like it's gone full circle isn't it no longer can they just rely on power plants of old as jaguar have been famous for doing and quite rightly because they were brilliant do you think this is a particularly exciting time for automotive industry or do you feel it has actually made it
2: more constrained um bit of both really i mean the constraints are enormous now you look at the the crash performance a car has to to uh, to get through which is phenomenal people are walking out of horrific crashes with not a scratch on them and that's a testament to the amazing amount of engineering development that's gone into these cars um the emissions regulations are quite rightly enormously tight now we're, we're getting to the point where you just can't make a piston engine Put that little amount of stuff out you know the, the petrol or diesel has to turn into something when you burn it and that has to come out of the car in one form or another um so we're, we're at the limit already and we've got to move further forward now jaguar land Rover's electric stuff they've been working on well certainly stuff i've been aware of for about 20 years so it's, it's a long time coming um And they've tackled it in a very sensible, taken a very long-term view on it. And we're starting to see some really good electric and hybrid models coming out now. Um, And that's certainly the way it's going to go. The car industry has been trying to get people into electric cars for as long as I can remember. When I was at Cologne um, with Ford, we had a um, a fleet of Ford Think electric cars, which no one can remember. Um, And that was in the late 90s. but when you look at the development costs of a, of a modern piston engine, you are talking about millions of pounds of worth of investment. I mean, even just the engine test cells, the dynos at uh, Whitley, the the fuel bill alone was over a million quid a year, um, just running eighty test cells. So you know the the, the huge investment necessary to make piston engines has always been a massive constraint. And when you go electric, um, you lose a lot of that that burden. Um, and also, you, you're more free in the spaces you can use in a car. You know, you can make a put a lot of the weight very low down and make a very good handling car. Now, obviously, we're constrained at the moment with battery technology, but that's improving all the time. After all, the electricity doesn't actually weigh very much at all. It's just the stuff we use to hold it that weight. Um, and, you know, you think I far we come from lead-acid batteries to lithium batteries, and there'll be various technologies after lithium, and... Um, get rid of both the the weight the expense and the political uh, issues attached to these uh, particular um, elements so the, the future is going to be really really exciting and when you have, feel the performance of an electric vehicle um it is totally it's like you're in the right gear all the time for every situation they're just beautiful to drive so I think it is a very exciting time, um, but also very challenging for the car companies. Mm, Absolutely. When we
0: talk about uh, cars, you can almost sort of separate them in between everyday cars, those utility vehicles that take us on our daily commute. And then previous to now, we've had cars that have been lifestyle choices they've been aspirational pieces they've been statements about people and jaguar have done that very well right the way back to the e-type to the f-types of today And Mm. one of the great ways that those cars differentiate themselves, apart from the actual physical design of how the cars look, is, of course, their engines and their performance. Everyone knows the difference between a flat-four Porsche engine to a Ferrari V12 or a Jaguar. And they all have their own personality because of their engines. How do you see electric cars then defining their own personality and differentiating themselves?
2: Well... They don't Um, and where you'll find the differentiation is in the other aspects of the car the way it looks the way it feels what it's like to be inside that car what it looks like from the outside Um, and when you think a lot of uh, luxury cars if you think of like a a Rolls-Royce famously they had near silent engines so their transfer to electric won't make any difference to their character at all but the you know, the the howl of a V twelve at high RPM, um I used to race an XJS V twelve with um with yourselves and uh that sound of that engine absolutely screaming was phenomenal. Um and that will go. That won't be there. I mean, there's various systems you can use to simulate engine noise. Um but I don't think you need to. I think um I think the modern um car experience will just be about those other things, everything you touch, feel, interact with and, and how that makes you feel when you're driving it. For you, this might be a difficult question to answer, I'm sure, but do
0: you now in what you're doing day to day prefer to work on restorations or do you still like to be at the cutting edge of new technology? What do you, which, which area do you feel most comfortable in these days?
2: I, I like the, the challenges where I've got to think up a new way of doing something. Um, something that really stretches my mind. That, that's what I really relish. The, the specials I build for car companies. Um, you know, they say, right, well, we want a car that does this, that, and the other. And you think, well, that sounds impossible. Um, therefore, I'm in. Um, <laughs> that's really good. I mean, I love the restorations. I love bringing an old car to life. I, I mentioned the E-Type we got in the moment, and that turned up, and it was totally rusty. There were holes in the roof and everything. And we've restored that in a way that's actually preserved all the old parts we haven't just replaced them with new parts we've refurbished the old stuff and made it good again and that's a really good feeling um but you're not really inventing anything new you're you're using skills and 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 knowledge to to you know get something working again but developing something completely new thinking about how on earth am i going to solve this problem is just really really great and I, i really enjoy that side of things
0: Well, one of the problems we have to solve in the Jaguar community, especially when we're talking about modern classics and some of the newer cars that will become classics one day, is they are far more electronic than their predecessors Mm. ever were. And interesting to hear you talk about your uh, early projects with cars dealing with ECUs there. Um, How do you see the sort of aftermarket, the restoration and the preservation of modern classics and their electronics. Is that a problem we can easily overcome, do you think?
2: Yes. Uh, it is if people start thinking about it now. Um, so there's two ways of tackling it. One is uh, preserving old ECUs. Uh, I mean, bear in mind, you know, there are, there are electronic uh, engine management systems going back to the 70s. Um, so Old electronics, um, if it hasn't blown up by now, it will probably last quite a long time. Um, but with sort of pre nineteen nineties electronics, there are individual components, and you can replace them. Sometimes you have to use a, a different part that performs the same function. But uh, if you understand electronics, you can you can rebuild them. After about mid nineteen nineties, things started getting really complex with the microprocessors used, and the, the, everything got a bit bespoke. Um, and it can be difficult trying to get replacement parts. Um, however, the other way of tackling it, as well as repairing old electronics, is to replace them with a modern control system that does the same function. Um, so, which is a bit tricky with some of the security functions with rolling codes and the such like, but uh, it is possible. So, we're starting to see people use very more modern microcontrollers to replace things like body control modules. um, And obviously, there's a huge range of modern engine management uh, ECUs available. There's a job of work in reprogramming them and mapping them to the engine, etc. But it means that you can have the old vehicle hardware working with modern electronics and and preserve the way it used to be um, or indeed enhance it. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of possibilities there of keeping this old stuff going. Interestingly, I've got some old... um, diagnostic kit i use on some of the old ecus because a lot of people as they you know dealerships and workshops as um, new cars come in they get rid of the old um, uh, diagnostic equipment um, to talk to the old ecus um but um i've, I've kept stuff so i've got things like um, old computers that are running windows 3.1 <laughs> so that they can run the old software to actually talk to such and such a car uh-huh. um and uh you know even uh, a couple of days ago i was working with an old rover uh v8 from the late 80s and i had to use um uh, a windows 3 system with a, a 14 c ux development aid on it. so there's various people who are preserving these old systems so we can keep the old electronics going so uh, there's, there's good reasons to be hope- hopeful yeah, that's
0: great and it, and it ensures of course for us fans of the mark and for car clubs as well and for the industry generally that there's a fresh supply of new classic cars as new generations get nostalgic about different eras and we can keep these cars on the road and and preserve them for the future Um, and of course one of the other challenges of that is preserving the skills to work on them and I know you're a great supporter of something I'm involved in which is the Heritage Skills Academy down at Bicester Heritage now also at Brooklands on the M25 and You know, I remember back to when the FBHVC piloted that scheme and there was questions as to whether anyone would take it up, whether kids were interested in working with old engineering. And it's not just cars, it's boats, planes, traction engines now. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um,
0: You know, there were a lot of questions as to whether anyone would sign up, whether anyone was interested, anyone cared. But boy, were they wrong because it's been oversubscribed twice over and it's been a real success, hasn't it?
2: Absolutely, it's phenomenal. The amount of interest is, is amazing, and um, the sort of stories you hear from kids is that they weren't allowed to actually get their hands dirty. Um, there's a sort of a risk-averse nature in a lot of uh, training these days. Um, so, actually getting to work on a lathe or any, a milling machine or something like that is it's, it's daunting for some uh, for some training providers, um, which is wrong. And there's no to be like that. Um, so you, you're tapping into this latent desire that kids have got to actually understand and work with stuff. I had, um, uh, a kid who came for a, a training course here, uh, a couple of weeks ago, his dad sent him down and, um, he was getting really good grades at a very good school. Uh, and he was destined for university, but he, he wanted to become a mechanic. That's what he really wanted to do. Uh, and he'd applied for apprenticeships and he couldn't get anything in his area because um, a lot of companies want to take on someone who'd never had any experience with a spanner before. Um, again, a lot of risk-adverse mentality. And he came down here, and we got, right, okay, this is the way you turn a spanner. And we started from absolutely, you know, beginnings. He was only 15, so he'd never worked with the sort of tools before. And within a day, we had him stripping down an engine um, and uh, rebuilding the brakes on the back of a, a Jaguar, in fact. Um and it just it was lapping it up absolutely loved it we've had um, families attend courses here. we do bespoke courses we'll tailor to individuals and we've had families turn up where their kids have just been diving into it, you know changing wheels and suspension components and doing engine diagnostics and stuff and I find it absolutely fascinating so there's this enormous interest in this sort of thing um uh, and we've got to tap into that. And the things that people like uh, the Heritage Skills Academy are doing is just brilliant, absolutely phenomenal. Um, and it's not just the training, it's the way it links into actual jobs um, and linking people together as well. Um, and people like the Association of Heritage Engineers with Dom, um, it, it's just phenomenal work. So there's, there's some people out there that are really making a difference and it's wonderful to see.
0: I guess it's a cultural thing in our country where we kind of don't put enough value on these hands-on craftsman skills, do we? And you tend to, I remember looking back to when I went to school and you were kind of, if you wanted to be a mechanic, you were always sort of, sort of told, well, you could probably do better than that, you know, as if it was yeah. some bad thing to do, you know, and that it has it's to bizarre. change, and it is changing, thankfully, isn't it? It's one of those utterly
2: bizarre things, and, and part of it is because people at schools... Traditionally, things like career advisors and such didn't understand what being a mechanic involved, didn't understand what being an engineer involved, didn't understand the difference between the Um But you look at a mechanic, they've got to understand mechanical engineering. They've got to be able to do fitting. Now, fitting in its correct term means being able to use milling machines, lathes, etc., to adjust the size of components to make them fit properly. Um, it's a skilled job. Um, they've got to understand a huge number of different mechanical systems from engine gearbox, differential suspension systems, braking systems, ABS, traction control, all of this stuff. They also have to be an electrician. So they've got to understand all the electrical skills needed to do wiring, you know, starter motor, um, battery systems, um, high voltage systems, ignition systems. They've also got to be a plumber. So they've got to understand all the cooling systems, the high-pressure fuel systems, everything that you would expect a, a plumber to be qualified for and more, mm. um, and the, and do electronic diagnostic systems. So they've got to be a, you know fairly good with computers and all the rest of it. So you're talking about someone who's multi-skilled, and yet people are still trying to pay them less than 20 quid an hour. Now it's just wrong.
0: It's just wrong. And we haven't even mentioned painting or trimming yet, which is yet another skill set to add on top of all of
2: that.
0: uh, Absolutely.
2: I mean, our paint shop um, runs under its own banner, Offbeat Customs. And, um, you know, the guys are immensely skilled with years of experience and the number of different processes they have to use on cars. And a car come in and it'll have a certain type of paint on it which needs a different system to the next one. And knowing that and knowing what to do and how to operate those tools is immensely skilled and it needs to be paid for, you know, and, um, you look at a paint job and you could be, if you want to do a full car paint job, you've got to take all the trim out, the windows out, um, get everything to a certain level, repair any sort of dents and scratches, first of all. Um, and then, and that could easily take a week's work with two guys on it. Um, And then you're going to be spending about 600 quid on paints and and lacquers and various other bits and pieces, plus your consumables. Mm. Um, And then, you know, a good couple of days in the paint shop doing the different layers and building it up and a good day getting it all polished back and checking everything's all right. And then someone wants to pay like 500 quid for a paint job. Mm. (laughs) Well, just grow up, you know. £5,000 is cheap for the amount of work that's one thing you know it's um, it's difficult and because people are trying to drive the prices down for mechanics body shop etc it means the quality starts going down and then the reputation starts going down um and and no one comes out as a winner you know mm-hmm. the customers end up with a poorer product uh, and the industry ends up with everyone in it being poorer um which is no good so you know we charge what we charge and some people go oh you're very expensive and uh, i'll wave bye-bye to them you Mm. know
0: yeah yeah well that's right and it's an an investment in talent and we need to start looking at them as craftsmen rather than
2: grease monkeys
3: absolutely
2: you're absolutely right yes absolutely that
3: yeah
0: and also you know what i really enjoy about stories that i hear out of heritage skills academy and the businesses that employ those apprentices is that it flies in the face of the stuff that you always hear and that is that young people should just sit behind laptops they're not interested in the real world they've never even seen a spanner they're not interested in getting out and fixing things they're just interested in social media it's wrong and it's proven that it's wrong
2: yeah absolutely right um the Obviously there is a certain subset that fall into that category, but um yeah, most people just want to do something useful and, and, and be part of something. And prove their work. Um, yeah. And working on um, older vehicles and using the range of skills needed for that is is really, really rewarding. Um and we're seeing that with the with the interest that we're getting in the the courses we're Yeah,
0: that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, you mentioned that at the start of this interview that you've had such a surge during the pandemic in interest in in the courses, and and that's interesting. I do think it's because, and do you know, I actually feel it in myself that throughout the pandemic, because we've been locked in our homes... Our world has become increasingly digital. We can't even meet down the pub anymore. We have to do it through Zoom. So even if you weren't someone who had to work at a desk behind a computer, you spend a lot more time behind a computer desk than you ever did before just to live your life yeah. and meet your friends and family. That's, we've all been forced into this. But what a fantastic release it is. And how precious it feels now to go out in the garage and go and do a bit of tinkering. And I think people have really seen the value in that, haven't they?
2: Very much so. Uh, and for somebody who's just starting out and never done any mechanicing before, it's, it's, it's really liberating. When you say, all right, I need, my car needs an oil change, I can do that. You know, it might take me like most of the day to do it because I've never done it before but, you know, I've had the training, I know what to do, I know how to do it right, that's liberating. You know, that, that is freedom. Um, and even if you pay someone else to do it, you can actually explain to them what you actually want doing uh, and you'll understand when it's been done. Um, you know, knowledge is power. Um, and uh, we're seeing that that's really driving a lot of the interest in, in, uh, in the, the sort of training that we're seeing. Um, people just want to understand what's involved with working on their own car even if they don't do the work themselves um, it's uh it's fascinating
0: well we know you're a jaguar man we know you're a fan of the mark as we all are and uh, i can think of no one better to help people learn some of the very basic skills so how do people listening to this podcast find out more about your courses
2: um, you can Google my name, Ralph Hosier, and stuff will come up. But if you look at the website, the company website, which is rhel.co.uk, but uh, yeah, if you just uh, Google that or look at rhel.co.uk, there's uh, a couple of different training pages on there, and you can find us from that great stuff we'll also put the links to that
0: on the description part of the podcast page at jcpodcast.com as well and hopefully we'll uh, see you out and about at some events this year as things get back to normal but uh, for now ralph Hose, thanks for joining us
2: thank you very much great Cheers. you're listening
0: to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship.
4: I'm literally just queuing up in the assembly area to go out for race two and um it's a little bit um nerve-wracking for me actually um qualifying on pole you're you're sort of queuing up at the front and you've got um about 25 other jaguars sort of staring at the back of you so um we're sat in the assembly area now i'm sure we're going to be called up within the next 10 or 15 minutes and uh yeah i'm just sort of running through in my head um the start procedure to to make sure that i can get a bit of a jump on james and trying to get into the corner before him Oh what a race! Of yeah, I'm absolutely um, knackered. Um, managed to 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 win again, which was just oh, I can't believe it. I'm a bit speechless, to be honest. I'm I'm absolutely over the moon. Um, it's the best result we've had, winning winning both races and for on pole is exactly what all the hard work was all about. So uh, um, yeah, I'm absolutely knackered. We we uh, the start didn't go to plan. I'm afraid to say. Um, those of you seen it, we actually had a worse start than the previous race. Um, just just can't get the car the grip off the start line like James can with the XJS uh, and a lot of the other guys for some reason. It's, it's something we may, maybe need to work on um, or find a place where I can maybe practice the starts with this kind of new setup. We have lost a fair bit of weight out of the car so I don't know if it's that, it just feels very different and uh, it seems to wheel spin really, really easily. So um, I actually dropped back to fifth off the start which was um, a bit of a pain. Um, but luckily with the, the power of the car, I managed to, to get back up in the top three by the first uh, few corners and the braking coming into hangar. So um, I managed to get that, that over and done with pretty quickly and uh, I was on the back of uh, James by lap two. Um, James actually did make a bit of a break early on, he uh, pushed really hard on some cold tyres and uh, and did gap us quite quickly, which I was really surprised at, but luckily um, we did manage to reel him back in and, and I actually managed to overtake him um, on the brakes um, after hanger straight. Um, we definitely have a bit of an advantage down that back straight and I was able to, able to sit in behind him, slipstream him and come around the outside on the brakes, which was a, which was absolutely great Uh great way of doing it. Uh, once I was in front, um, I just had to defend the rest of the race. He, um, I actually managed to to get a bit of a gap on him. Um, I managed to put in some really quick lap times and uh, got a bit of a gap on him, but um, he did soon start catching me up when we started running out of tyre and brakes near the end of the race. So The, the last couple of laps were pretty nail-biting uh, and he was putting me under some... Uh, heavy pressure especially when we were trying to get around some of the back markers so um, it was less than a second I believe a difference between me and him at the end of the race there but I'm just so pleased we managed to, to hold on um, so I mean looking back it was a bit of a, a mixed weekend uh, of results really obviously we've had the best results we've ever had all this this hard work we've been putting in the car has, has finally paid off um, and um, but I'm also um, pretty gutted for Matthew with his, with his first race um, he's actually shot off with the car and he's going to go clean the fire extinguisher and um, powder off the car and um, so we can get it back very early next week and assess the damage and see see what needs to be done to the car um, see what's salvageable and what's not but um yeah it just i'm just so pleased with the progress as well as my car and uh, and same as the whole team um Dan and uh, my brother and uh, my dad, Gary, um, were here to witness it. So um, they're all absolutely over the moon. It's it's just not me as a driver that that gets the pleasure out of getting these results. Um, All of us as a team put in a huge amount of effort in the car and it's really showed this weekend. So yeah, absolutely over the moon and what a great start to the season. And I thought we would do a little bit of a walk through the garages just to uh, have a bit of wander around some of the other Jags that are actually here. So um, Silverstone was a really good turnout for us this year. Um, as I said earlier, there's a couple of cars that should be here that aren't that were on the entry list. Um, one of those is is Colin. As I said earlier, we have some great battles with Colin, and it's a real shame that he's not out um, this weekend because it would be really nice to see where our kind of pace um, comes up against his XJS. It's a very well developed car, and, he, and he's normally a normally a front runner, so um, that's a bit of a shame. And also, um, there's a couple of other cars that also are on the entry that aren't here, so guy um he has a v12 xjs same again with guy it's a very competitive car i think it's a new car last year so that's a great shame that he's actually not here with that because it would have been interesting um seeing the power of the v12 especially down hanger straight It's it's really surprising how much speed you actually carry down that straight and it is quite a long straight so um just walking through the garages actually we've got um james ram's car in front of me um sort of having a bit of a walk around it looks like james has been a bit of a busy boy over the winter. So. Uh, Um, It looks like he's had a fresh paint job so the car looks absolutely perfect and just spotting through the uh, the wheels it looks like uh, James has had a bit of a brake modification as well so he's gone up to a a similar, well actually look bigger than the brakes we've got on our car with a Tarot setup so he's he's got a new brake setup so uh, he's obviously found something in that so yeah, we've uh, we've obviously only a little bit ahead of him in qualifying. So I think he's going to be the one to watch here today. Um, but we've got quite a few other cars here. It's, it's a great turnout. We've got um, Tom Lenthal's cars also in here. That's another XJS, um, which is a really well prepared car. Um, and he also runs Derek Pearce in the XK8. There's not many XK8s in our series at the moment. Um, there's only two. Um, Um, and I think it's only Derek here with an XK8 this weekend. So that's a really good looking car. And I think that is going to be a car that's going to be used in the future within our series as the XK8. It's quite a, it's got quite a good, uh, um, suspension already on the XK8 and with the V8 they're very powerful so I think that is going to be a car that will be used in the future. Um, we've also got Mike Seaborn, um, he's, his car's in the garage here in the Castrol livery XJ40 um, which has got to be one of the, the best liveries uh, or definitely the most iconic. I absolutely love that Castrol livery. So um, he's, uh, he's racing um, with us here and I think he's also doing some of the other races with a classic touring car. Um, that is one of the massive benefits um, with us um, and with the ctrc we can also run um with the um, i think it's the pre-90 touring car or the pre-83 I, I can't remember the exact um, one and i think james is also racing with them tomorrow so um, that's a, a massive benefit that we can actually have four races in total instead of the two um so that, that, that's a great start and we've also got um, uh Parked up here, um, Michael Holtz XJ40. Uh, sorry, X300, which is the same as mine. Uh, it's a non-supercharged version, um, and same with Michael. It looks like he's been a pretty busy boy over the winter. It's got a fresh paint job. Car's looking really good. Um, I think he was telling me earlier he's actually reshelled, ready for this year. Um, I think he had a a previous shell that was raised for a long period of time and uh, had a few war wounds. So he kind of moved everything across, and looks like he's got some some new brakes as well so um but yeah really great turnout we've got simon dunford he's in a class a xjs he's here as well Um, we've got david ringham um he's in the xjs as well Um, simon lewis's lovely xj6 the uh series two um as well which is is a cracking car um, and also we've got Daniel Stewart in the garages here as well and Rick Walker so um, that's all the cars I can see I just wander a little bit further up to see if I can see any more oh actually also uh, Lawrence Coppock's uh, V12 XJS I think that's the only V12 that's out with us this weekend um, so um, it'll be interesting to see how um, how he is down the straights and uh, I think his son Charles is also out in his XJS as well so I'm sure they're going to have a couple of battles And also, um, with the classic um, touring car and the pre 83 who we're racing with, um, we have got. a guy called uh, David Howard. Um, David Howard used to race with us a long time ago, and he's got quite a famous um, XJ12 in the in original broad speed livery, which is is a cracking livery. So um, that's quite a powerful car. So it will be interesting to see how how the earlier kind of XJ12 compares um, back in racing in our championship. Anyway, so that'll be one to definitely watch. So yeah, it's all. Uh, It's all looking good. There's some great liveries, some great cars, and it looks like there's been some busy people out there.
0: That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the J. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.